Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. About uh, five years ago, I preached a sermon called What is Love? Uh, recently, one of the members that uh, had moved out of state had contacted me and asked if uh, she'd get her hands on that sermon. And uh, after listening to it, she said, man, if it has been five years, I, I really think it would be good for uh, your church if you preach this again. And so when uh, Josh asked me to preach, I was like, yeah, actually, I got a great idea for what I can do again. Uh, of course, I've uh, changed it some, you know, five years, you do a little bit of growing and, and think a little bit differently about some things, but uh, it'll be uh, similar, kind of broken down similarly as that time. So if you were here five years ago and it sounds familiar, then praise God you remembered some of it. That's awesome. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your words and the weight that you place behind love, I pray that we would leave this morning with a clear and right understanding of what you define love to be. As we consider the weight that you put behind these words, let it stir our hearts to love, to love biblically. Not that there is another kind of love, but that we would honor you with what we now rightly understand as love and with the way that we live that out. Lord, in these uh, matters, we are desperate for your work. You call us to work, but you remind us that it is you who is at work, both too willing to work for your good pleasure. And so, as we consider these things, as we dig into your word, Lord, help us to rightly understand them and to put them into practice. May we honor you with this time and with these truths. It is because of Christ that we can pray. Amen. When the word of God declares to us that if we have enough faith, to remove mountains, but we do not have love, then we are nothing. Well, we ought to take that very seriously, right? Anybody remove any mountains recently with your faith? Love has become such a loose term in our world. But the Word of God does not play lightly with the word love, the way our culture commonly does these days. I mean, just think about the way you may even use the word love. Uh, anytime I like something a lot, I say I love it. Uh, I love my pet bunny, you know, or I love this dish that we had for dinner, or, well, um, when we look at God's word, God's word does not play so flippantly with the word love. Within our current society, and unfortunately, even within the realm of some of those professing to be Christians, we have been sold this view of love that is actually antithetical to the biblical definition of love. 
And so my aim this morning is to give you a clear understanding of what love truly is according to Scripture. And in order to do this, I want to focus in on three main points. Uh, The points are the same as last time. I want to start with where does love begin, point one. Point two, I want us to look at worldly versus biblical love. And then point three, I want us to close with a proper application then of biblical love. So again, first point is where does love begin? Our second point this morning will be worldly versus biblical love. And then we'll end on the third point with a proper application of biblical love. Before we understand the difference between the world's view of love and God's clear definition of what love is, we've got to lay some foundations, right? That's why our first point this morning is where does love begin? I'm sure it is no surprise to you that love begins where everything begins, namely with God. Scripture is very clear. Without God, we do not and cannot truly love others. If we do not know God, we cannot love others. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. You see, we love because God first loved us. This passage in 1 John is focusing in on believers. We see that clearly in 1 John 4, 7. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But notice the clarity of these two passages. In order to love, we must know and love God. Now we human beings, only know and love God because he first loved us. The prerequisite to us loving God is his first having loved us. If God does not love us, if he has not saved us so that we rightly know him, then we cannot love others according to God's definition of love, which again is the only true definition of the word love. One more uh, clarity. We hear the word love so much, and it is so wildly defined as so many things. God is the one who declares what is true and what is false. And therefore, his word declares to us what love truly is. Any definition that does not line up with what God calls love is not actually love. It may be a genuine desire, it may be a genuine feeling, but it does not line up and therefore it is not love. When the world tries to define love, it cannot be accurate because they do not know God. Unless they are using God's definition of love, it falls short every time. Let's just look back to our passage in Corinthians for some clarity here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Notice specifically that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If God is love, love being an attribute of God, then love, like God, never mingles with deceit. It does not uh, co-mingle or coexist with falsehood or lies. So to give up some of my cards a little early, let me say this. If God says something is sinful, wrong, or unacceptable to him, yet you, maybe even as a professing Christian, say that in order to love someone, you don't agree with what God says about that, or you perhaps won't tell them that that thing they are doing or that lifestyle they are choosing to live is sinful or wrong, then you simply are not loving. Rather, you are actually rejoicing at wrongdoing. And according to this verse, that is not love. A good summary of this passage would be to say that love is selfless. It is thinking more highly of others than yourself. It is looking out for others according to God's terms. Notice in the passage, it is not demanding your own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. This can only be done through knowing God and the gospel that enables us to love this way. God's love for you, Christian, was something he chose to have for you before you were born. In doing this, God proves that no matter who you are or what you do, you cannot change his great love for you. It was done outside of you. His love was placed upon you, not based on your works or your obedience, not based on some kind of worthiness in you. And this is a great truth for multiple reasons, but let me outline two, I think, of the main ones. First, you and I, prior to salvation, are dead in sin. We have no obedience. We have no worthiness with which ought to put God into our debt or cause him to love us. Number two, this is a love that is outside of you. You could never have earned it, and therefore, it is not dependent upon you in any way. You can never lose it. It is truly a selfless love. It was placed upon you because God decided to place his love on you merely by his pure choice to do so. God did not need you. His love for you cannot be out of some need, as if he was wanting, needing, lacking something. This is stunning, Christian, because it also means that you cannot change his love for you. Paul explains this love of God for us in Romans chapter 8, verses 80, or sorry, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in case you were wondering, Christian, you are a part of creation. So this passage covers you as well. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because he did this independently of you. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, understanding this gospel truth that God has placed his love upon those whom he would save before creating us is very important for us to rightly understand and apply love. God fulfilled the purpose of his love for his people and proved that it was true by sending his son into time to take on a human nature, to live perfectly, and to take our place under his wrath for our sin. He raised his son and proved that the penalty was fully paid. Because of his great love for us, he will most definitely save all of his people. His love has a purpose, and it is fulfilled through Christ. And seeing this gospel love is what enables us to love properly according to God's word in a selfless manner. Let me say it this way. When God saves us and reveals to us the beauty of his gospel, we now have something that is unchanging. It is unfading, with which we, mankind, those who have been saved, can use as a foundation, a basis for our love to others. You see, the only way that I can love you outside of yourself is if I love you because of God's love for me. If I love you for any other reason, it will be a selfish reason. It will be changeable. When you no longer give me that reason to love you, then my love will be affected by that, which means it's not actually love. This church is why I say to you, even you who may be guests, maybe you've been here like this is your first Sunday, this is why when I send you away, I'll say I love you. Because my love for you isn't based upon knowing you or really enjoying time with you or all of those things would be great. I long for those things. But I love you because God loved me. So even if I don't know you, I love you. I think this is most clearly seen in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are called to imitate God and walk in love as Christ loved us. Well, how did Christ love us? He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Christ loved us by sacrificing his own life for us. 
He did not do this primarily, hear this, this is such a key detail. He did not do this primarily because of you. First and foremost, he went to the cross out of his love for the Father. God indeed has a great love for you if he has saved you. Out of that love, he sent his son to die so that he could save you. But the son does not go to the cross first and foremost because of man. It is first and foremost out of obedience to the father. Again, that actually displays for us a selfless love. We want Christ to go to the cross because of his love for the father, not for us. Because we are, at many times, and definitely prior to salvation, unlovable. This is where love comes from. It comes from a triune God who has always existed in this other-centered love for each other. We rightly love, or we have the correct foundation of love for others, when it is according to God and based in and through the gospel. I love others regardless of circumstances because God loved me outside of my circumstances. God loved me because he simply chose to. Because of this, I'm now freed up. I'm now able to love others firm and rooted in God's love. I can love others and I don't need their love back. My love for them isn't based on something they do or give or provide. Not because it feels good to love others. Most things could happen and could be great. But most importantly, I can love others because God loved me when I was unlovable. If my love for others is not rooted in God, it will be a selfish love. I can love you genuinely and in truth because my love for you is not based on needing something from you. In God, I am adopted. I am chosen. I am loved. I am saved. Christian, that is you. You cannot give me anything more or better than God has already given me. And and please see this too because it really will change the way that you live when you rightly wrap your head around it properly. Because all that I am and all that I have is rooted in God, you cannot take anything from me either. I'm I'm free to love you without limit. Because you can't take my identity, you can't take my value, my worth. Apart from God, I don't have any of that thing, none of those. You cannot take God from me And since that is my identity, then you can fail me again and again, and I can love you with all of my heart. This is an amazing reality. Now, in my love for God, I am freed up to love you selflessly. I have been given the example and the foundation of how to do this in the gospel. Here's maybe another brief example that would be helpful. How can I love my wife, my my most intimate relationship on this earth and in this time besides God? How can I love her when she is really just waist deep in her own sin and being unlovable? When she's fighting against me, when she's trying to rule over me, 
as she's been cursed to want to do? Well, I can love her because my God loved me even before I was alive. And he loved me through the time I was waist deep in sin and unlovable and loves me even in times when I return to it, when I lose the battle against the flesh. He loved me and he gave his life for me when I was a wretched sinner. Therefore, if my love for my wife is rooted in him, and if my love for anyone else is rooted in him, then when they are unlovable, I love because God loved me. My love for you is rooted in something that is unchanging, that cannot fail. And I hope you see clearly where love begins and what it is founded upon. And so with that, I want to move to our second point this morning. Worldly love versus biblical love. I want to begin with why our, our current culture's view of love is so far off from what Scripture declares the standard of love, of love is. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. For people will be lovers of self. Now this passage continues on with more clarities, and it adds to the things that people will love. But all of those things that are added in this passage come from this core foundational truth. People will become lovers of self. When you are the top priority, when your heart becomes self-centered in its love, then you cannot love according to Scripture. Any claim you make of love is false. It does not line up with God's definition of love. Romans 1, 24 and 25 says it this way, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, our current culture, those who uh, have not been saved by grace through faith, worships itself. They've become lovers of self and worship creature rather than creator. And now foundationally, this is why the culture's view of love is so different from the biblical standard of love. Just think back to the Corinthians passage and you'll see that the things that love does cannot be done if it is self-centered. It must be selfless love or it can't meet what 1 Corinthians defines love to be. In this lover of self-culture, people are encouraged to chase out their every desire. Of course, as long as those things you desire are okay with the culture. The culture encourages you to follow your own heart. Church, this is why the world around us promotes such wickedness as boys can be girls and girls can be boys. And if that's what they want, then we should just chop off body parts and permanently destroy people. It's this, just be true to yourself and trust your heart and you'll find your happiness and that's the best way you can love ideology. Perhaps you've even heard this, well, you can't love others until you love yourself. 
All of that is rooted in a self-centered love that simply does not measure up to God's word. And therefore, it is not love at all. Now, let me share a passage that really clears up this follow your heart idea. If you've been here for any length of time, surely you've heard this. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The passage goes on to say that God is the one who understands hearts, not man. Which is pretty cool. Just a little reminder for you. But let me ask you this. If you met a mentally insane man one who is obviously desperately sick and impossible to understand, would you ask him for counsel, for advice? Would you even ask him for directions? Of course not. There's something wrong with that person. So why do we, even within the church, encourage people to follow their hearts? God's declared that your heart is not right. There's something wrong with it. It's desperately sick. It is deceitful above all things. I would submit to you that it is not loving. It's actually in opposition to the word of God to encourage people to follow their heart. The next major difference, remembering that the world's view of love comes from faulty foundations of self-love, is this press from our current culture to accept and celebrate what they call good. And do not dare say it's not good or even worse, call it sin, which is what it is. Our current culture has moved from relativism, where as long as you agree to disagree, then everyone can just believe what they want to believe, which they really never held to in the first place, right? To, if you don't agree with my view and celebrate and promote it, you're hateful, you're a bigot, uh, or you're racist, or you're homophobic. All sorts of fun buzzwords that they like to throw out when it comes to these things. You can't possibly be a Christian because you are not loving. Church, the world knows that love should set the Christian apart. But it fails to understand what love is, so it sinfully applies its definition and condemns those who fail to meet the worldly standard of love. Even when that person is biblically, actually loving them. You see, as Christians, we must hold to a biblical worldview of what love is and isn't. We were created and we exist to glorify God. Therefore, we must love in a way that brings God glory. When we approve of sin, we are not loving. We are not to take part in sin, not even the approval of someone's sinful lifestyle or choices. We see the warning against approving of sin further down in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
Notice the last verse. They not only do these things, but they give approval to others to practice them. If you give approval to something that God calls sin, you are not loving. It does not matter what the world tells you. Rather, you are guilty of sin yourself, and you are actually condoning a person as they travel on the broad road to destruction. This action cannot be loving. It is condemning. All those who stamp the boarding pass to hell under the guise of being loving are either utterly ignorant and confused or willfully wicked. Church, as Christians, we cannot be either of these. Scripture also has another staunch warning, and uh, this is kind of a, a personal story that is funny, though the passage and its warning is something our current culture needs to desperately hear again. Uh, in January of 2003, after I'd been coming to uh, this church for some time, uh, I was talking to Pastor Joshua then, who was the youth pastor, and wanted to volunteer in middle school. So Josh encouraged me to go home and to open the Word of God and to pray. Pray about that. Uh, in my immaturity, I went home and I played a little game that we call Bible Roulette, right? So I just kind of, you know, oh, okay, here we go. Uh, the first place that I landed was a bunch of heavy stuff about people being outside the camp. And if they have spots with rings around them, they need to go that way for this many days. And I was like, okay, Lord, that was my fault. I'm sure that, that was, I just, I did it too fast. Okay, so let me try this again, right? Um, by the way, that's a silly game to play. Just be in the Word. <laughs> if you're in the Word and you know His Word, you don't need to play Bible roulette, right? But in His mercy and in His grace and His providence... I landed on this passage, Matthew 18, verses 5 and 6. Whoever receives one child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So as I am considering working in junior high youth ministry, this is the passage that I landed on. Needless to say, I never played Bible roulette again. It's not a game for me. But this verse doesn't simply apply to working with kids and causing them to sin. It is very specific to that. But listen carefully. If you confirm promote, do not speak against a sinful lifestyle causing one who perhaps professes faith in Christ to sin, then God declares that it would be better for you to tie a very heavy stone and drop yourself somewhere where you will not come back up. If you condone or affirm sin, you are taking part with others in sin. And if this is done especially with children, as the passage states, it is particularly grievous in the sight of our holy God. When we claim what God has called sin to not be sin, then we cause others to sin, and we are guilty. And church, the Bible says it would be better for you 
to tie a large millstone around your neck and throw yourself in the depth of the sea. If the scriptures have such harsh warnings about these things, would I be loving to tell you, as long as you don't participate in the sin, it's okay for you to approve of others participating in it? Of course not. If it has such staunch warnings about these things, I wouldn't be loving you not to tell you about them. Now, for clarity's sake, perhaps you have done this. Or perhaps you're in the middle of something like that. In Christ, you can be forgiven. His blood covers the most grievous of sins. But we do not go on sinning all the more that his grace may abound, or we will prove ourselves to not be of God. The last major difference that I want to unpack builds upon this point. Our culture says that if you think what it approves is wrong, you must be silent, you must change your views, you are not loving, and then you must promote and agree with it. It continues to say if you dare to disagree and you try to help others see an area of error, then you are hateful. Again, all the, all the buzzwords, throw them in there. They love to throw them out. This view comes again from the faulty foundation of self-love, of creature worship. You see, if the highest authority is you and your heart has led you to whatever it is you're doing, then I can't say to you that God, who is indeed the supreme authority of everything, says what you're doing is wrong because you are your own highest authority. The foundation of your view as a creature worshiper is that if you accept that God exists, then he only and must only exist to make you happy because you are God in your own eyes. And if this is your foundation, then you will inevitably think anything you find joy in, God could not or would not tell you you are not allowed to enjoy. This is why creature worship and love of self is not actually love. It flies in the face of God, and it is a view that leads to condemnation. And in our culture's view of love, if you say something is wrong or sinful, but it brings some type of joy to the person, then they simply claim that you're not loving. You're not being like Christ. You're not loving. Even those who don't know Christ say such things. If you challenge someone in regards to something that they love, then you are wicked. You're a bigot. Christian, be prepared to have all of these fun words thrown at you and love anyways, because your love is rooted in God. This is what happens when the world who does not truly know Jesus but only knows about him takes their view and definition of love and then applies it to what they think Christians should be. The world knows that Jesus was loving, and so they think if you are not loving towards them, again, according to their own definition, then you are not like Jesus. However, their definition is wrong, and damnably wrong at that. In contrast to this false worldview, please hear this truth about love according to the Word of God. Proverbs 27 
verses 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Just think about how stark a contrast this passage is compared to the world's view of love. Our our world says a true friend stays by you, is always with you. They don't contradict you. They always support you. Whatever you think brings you joy, they encourage you in it. They support you in it. They celebrate it. This passage says that's actually an enemy who's kissing you, not a friend. The enemy kisses you, approves of all things, never rebukes. The friend, the one who truly loves, is faithful to wound, to rebuke. Rebuke is often hard, right? If you've been rebuked, it it hurts a bit. But your friend, the one who really loves you, they're faithful with rebuke because they care for you. They care for your soul. They care for your maturity. They care for your honoring of God and your joy. If your friends, if those who love you have never told you you're out of line with God, then they're not your friends. They are your enemies. Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 3, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That doesn't sound very loving. Jesus defines what love is. He is God. And he says, if your brother is in sin, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. He goes on to say, forgive him as many times as he repents. This is your life now, Christian. As many times as your brother comes to you about sin in your life, repent if it is indeed sin. And he will forgive you. And you'll grow together. You'll mature together. It will be a sweet blessing to you. It will be an obedience to the command of Christ, whom we love. Now, the idea of rebuking someone who is claiming to be a brother in Christ, a Christian, and is not in line with the word of God, has become the quickest route to being labeled hateful in our culture, in their worldview. I mean, if you actually obey God's word in in our current culture, you will be labeled as a bigoted person, a hateful person. Even, unfortunately, many professing believers have bought this view. You cannot call anything that our culture says is good sinful. If you are not in line with the unbelieving world's view on things, then you're hateful, period. There's just no exception. And of course, Scripture says the opposite. Isaiah 5, 20 and 21 Woe, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. If love means never correcting, never saying, no, you're wrong, how does anyone ever grow up? I mean, part of the problem that we are facing as a society is people just don't grow up. The prolonged adolescence epidemic is very real in our culture. 
Now just think this through with me. When a child is born, no matter how beautiful or adorable they seem, they are ignorant. They, they don't know anything. They may recognize the sound of their mother or see her face and feel her warmth, but they don't know anything. They, they are needy. They can't care for themselves. The first things a loving parent does is to start training their child, helping them to learn, to grow, right? So that it will grow in their knowledge and their ability to do things. If, if you simply took an infant and said, we have to accept them the way they are, we, we can't drive any change into them for fear of contradicting their desires, who would want to do that? How, how's that child going to turn out at 15? If they make it to 15. Many of you have met a child who was never disciplined, never truly loved growing up. Is it fun to spend time with those children? It's difficult. We live in a world that says, you can't tell me what I am doing is wrong or dangerous. You have to let me do it and tell me that I'm okay doing it and that it's a good thing and celebrate it or else you hate me. You have to celebrate my sinful actions and desires or you are hateful. Church, do you see the problem here? If you had a family member killing themselves with drugs or alcohol, regardless of their age, would you go out and buy them more to support it? Would you do that in the name of love? Pass them another bottle? Or would the truly loving thing to do be intervention? Even while they're yelling at you that you hate them. And my point here is that this worldly definition of love is not only inconsistent on its own, but it is dangerous. It is dangerous to allow people to do things that can hurt them, particularly things that can condemn their soul to hell eternally. It is not loving. Proverbs 3.12 For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. You see, God, who is love, reproves, rebukes, corrects those whom he loves. Just like a father reproves the son in whom he delights. The beauty of God's love is that it was given to us by God's free choice outside of acts that we did. It was given to us to save us to change us from the person we were into the person God wants us to be. And if God, the creator and definer of love, calls reproof and loving act, then the world's argument that reproof is not loving is just quite simply wrong. And this leads me to my last point. Understanding these things and, and having a proper application of the true word love, you know, as the Bible defines it, in order to understand how to properly live out biblical love, we need to see where our problems arise. You see, a major problem facing the church today is that we are drenched in a culture, and when we are, we begin to adopt its worldviews. This happens so slowly that most times we don't even recognize it. I am guilty of encouraging people to follow their heart as a believer. As this happens, it becomes a view that Christians begin living by. 
I cannot tell you how many professing Christians have told me that it is not loving for me to tell someone that they shouldn't be married, even though they are the same sex. It is not loving for me to call that sin. It's really, really an unfortunate thing within the church today. So as we close, let's look at how we as Christians are to hold a right view of biblical love. Now, I can't help but turn to John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, I can almost hear you guys finishing it. I know some of the students can do it. You will keep my commandments. As a Christian, we must love God above all things. In Luke, Jesus unpacks it like this. He says in Luke 14, 26 and 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, don't let the word hate throw you off here. Jesus didn't teach us to hate our wives, our brothers, our sisters, our kids, right? He is purposefully being drastic in his comparison because he wants to make his point very clear. He is saying, if your love for me does not exceed and exceed so drastically your love for all of these other good and right relationships, so much so that it looks like you hate them in comparison to me, then you cannot be my disciple. More than once, I've heard from friends say, if I had to choose between my child or God, I choose my child. And I have had to lovingly say, then your child is your God, and you are not saved. You need the gospel. A so-called pastor here in town years back said those very things teaching against proper theology. If he had to choose between his son or if God sent his son to hell, he would choose his son. Well, then he's not a Christian and he shouldn't be a pastor. To properly understand how to apply the biblical view of love, we must start with a proper view of loving God above all other things. Hear this. That way, when those other things that you love dearly choose to live sinful lifestyles, you don't change your view about what love is. Pastors upon pastors who would say the word of God clearly says homosexuality is sinful will have a child who becomes homosexual in their desires and then they will change. I was wrong. God doesn't really mean that. This is why you must love Christ above all other things. So much so that it looks like hate in comparison. Simply put, if you want to know how to uh, apply biblical love to your life, you do so by obeying God's word. If you love me, keep my commandments. First, you must be saved. You must love God above all things, and then out of that, you will obey the commandments of Christ. Not perfectly, right? You guys, if you know me, you know I would never say something as silly as that. Not perfectly. But you have a desire to obey. It is your, the longing of your heart. You want, you want to repent when you fail. Now here's the tricky part, and I hope this blesses you as it has blessed me. If you want to know if a brother or sister in Christ is truly loving you, when they 
bring a reproof, a correction to you, then go to Scripture with them. Let me be so bold as to say this. Our worldview has been so tainted by our culture that oftentimes when a brother rebukes us, when they're loving you, when they're doing the thing they are supposed to do, you just remove them as a friend. You just exit them from your life. You just say, forget it. I don't want anything to do with that. That person was judging me. No, he was loving you. Uh, Now, perhaps he failed in how he did that. Maybe the delivery was off. Maybe the timing was horrible. But he's loving you, trying to show you where sin is still reigning to help you grow, to help you mature. That's a good thing, church. When this happens, go to Scripture together. Look at the Word of God. Perhaps your brother's wrong. Perhaps it's a matter of liberty, and that's okay. Know that your brother loved you enough to risk that confrontation and that difficulty regardless. And if they're wrong, they'll repent. Oh, I see that now. I'm sorry. I just wanted to make sure I was loving you well. Well, praise God. Love me well and be wrong better than kissing me and not loving me at all. Please. Here's a practical example in one of the most... uh, common times that our interactions as Christians are misunderstood. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Uh, If you are a believer, that's what Paul uses that term, saint, you've been called to do the work of the ministry. Well, what is that work? We're to build up the body of Christ until we attain the full unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus, until we reach mature manhood or womanhood. This is the maturity in manhood that matches the full stature of Christ. So that means that we are to do this until he calls us home. Because none of us reaches the full stature of Christ now, right? We do this by looking to Christ, by looking to the Word of God. And why is this so important? Church, why do we strive for maturity? Why do we spend our lives building up other fellow believers into Christ? Well, verse 14 unpacks it, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Every time I hear that passage, I think of those silly, tall, like inflatable guys that you see outside of car dealerships with the air pumping through them. They're flopping all over, right? That's what it reminds me of. How unstable are those things? How many car accidents have they caused? I've got to wonder. Is that what you want your life to be? Do you want to be flopping around, never knowing which way you're going, never having a solid foundation to stand on? You see, that's what happens to us when we fail to grow, when we refuse to be discipled, to mature, when we remain in these ruts of immaturity and we are literally just tossed to and fro by cunning, deceitful schemes of man. And this is how Christians end up believing false views about love and about God. This is how, unfortunately, many prove themselves not to be Christians at all. 
Our passage goes on to say this, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, so rather than being tossed to and fro, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, we have been called to speak the truth in love. Church, it is not loving to lie or to withhold truth when someone is pursuing sin. When it will cost them their life eternally, it is not loving to close your mouth. It is not loving to turn away. It is not loving to be, well, it's just, it's okay, it's what they're choosing to do. I just want them to be happy. You want them to be happy for this much time and suffer for eternity? Then you don't love them. You see, we have been called to speak the truth in love. We've been called to hold our brothers and sisters accountable in Christ. It is a blessing to each other when we do this. It is not loving, church, to beat your brother over the head with the truth. If you're just coming at them with all the force you can muster up, if you're just taking the biggest swing you can take, that's not loving. You may be speaking truth, but you're not doing it in love. Those two things are important. When you wield the truth like a battering ram, it proves that you're not aiming to help the person see truth. You're actually aiming to condemn them with that truth. When I'm concerned about a brother and their failure to see sin, I want to come alongside of them with truth in such a way that it reveals my deep desire to help them see their error and to repent of it, and that I'm willing to walk it out together with them so that they may truly change in any way that I can help them change in. I do not condemn them with truth and refuse to walk out the correction with them. Now, even our best efforts at this with fellow believers can be received poorly. What I mean is I, I literally prayed and fasted and lovingly reached out to friends professing to be believers. And their response to my reach out proved that they did not receive it in the love that it was sent. The aim of our hearts, Christians, should always be to lovingly help and restore as much as it is in our power to do so. This means we must consider the maturity of the brother or sister that we're reaching out to. We must bring our best effort in considering those things to lovingly rebuke whatever sin is there. If someone is newer to the faith or still immature in their faith, I take like multiple extra cautious steps to love them and to remind them that I'm there to walk those things out with them. Not just point out the sin, but to speak the truth in love. We ought to consider those realities when we engage with our brothers and sisters. However, even in our best attempts, that does not mean that the one we are confronting will always see it in that light. And that's why I wanted to bring this to you today, Christian. If you feel like someone is improperly judging you, you must, in love, search the Word of God and see if they're out of line. If they truly are a brother and they truly desire to help you grow, then they will also desire to see if they are wrong. Perhaps they're missing something. And so we go to the Word together. If we can't agree, we bring in others. If need be, we bring in the elders. And we do that because we love each other and want each other to grow. Now, 
to the unbeliever or the false professor. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes goes like this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Unbeliever, if you are here this morning, you are dead in your sin and your trespasses, and the wrath of God remains upon you. But it doesn't have to stay that way. Repent of your sin and entrust your life to Christ Jesus, not just as a Savior, but a Lord with whom you will bow your knee to and be saved. Don't go another day. You may not have another one. Repent and believe. I say that because I love you. As Christians, we are called to love even our enemies. Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We don't do this by ignoring their sin. Rather, we do it by lovingly showing them their sin and their desperate need for a Savior. We do this by calling them to repentance and faith as Jesus did throughout his entire life. As Christians, we are called to have a special, deep, and abiding love for fellow believers. In fact, multiple times in 1 John, John says, If you don't love your fellow brothers, you are not a Christian. 1 John 2, 9-11 Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let me leave you with this. If we are to have a special love for our brothers, it rightly follows that we should be extra slow to think they are wrong when they risk confrontation to point out sin in us. We should take extra precaution and get counsel again if needed. One of the biggest mistakes you can make as a Christian is to miss the faithful wounds of a friend who truly loves you. Christ has called us to other-centered love rooted in God. He gave us The example for this at the cross, when his love for the Father caused him to obey and give his life as a ransom for many. Through his finished work, we are now freed from the bonds of sin, and we are enabled to love others selflessly rooted in this gospel news. I truly pray that this has been a blessing for you today. I aim to lay a foundation for where love comes from. I wanted to show you one of the, some of the major differences between our culture's definition of love and the biblical definition of love. And I wanted to end with some clear practical teaching on how we live this out as believers. Love truly does set us apart, Christian. They will know we are Christians by our love. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together this morning. Lord, where these truths are are hard for us, where perhaps we have failed, maybe failed miserably at these things, would your spirit be at work bringing us a confidence in the finished work of your Son on our behalf so that we can humbly 
and joyfully go to those who have perhaps aimed to love us well or perhaps that we have failed to love and we can speak the truth in love for our good and for your glory, Lord. We are so thankful for your Son who makes this possible for your eternal love by your own free choosing, which makes this possible. It is because of Christ that we can pray. Amen.